Hello and welcome to the If We Knew Then podcast. I'm Stephen Socks. And I'm Lori Socks. Today we're speaking with Indira Cruz, another epic human being that we have had the honor and privilege of getting to know at Liam's new school, Citizens of the World. This conversation reminds me of how important it is to share our stories it really just came about from the mutual admiration of warm sweaters in the wintertime, and we discovered similarities in our stories. And we discuss that sometimes on this journey, we can feel like we are alone. And so I'm always thankful, especially today for our new friend and her willingness to be so open and honest she is a gem and a gift. Welcome, Indira Cruz. Hello, Indira. How are you? Good morning. I'm great. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. I met you through Citizens of the World. You're at Liam's campus a couple mornings a week. Stephen, have you met? We, I don't Ms. think we officially met. Just I've seen you at the gate a couple of times and, and waved, but yeah. I don't think we officially, yeah, you've got a lot of kids coming through there. So, And I, I forget how we got, because I think we were having a discussion maybe about warm sweaters. Probably, because I think we often bond over warm sweaters in the morning. <laughs> and somehow we found this conversation where I was like, how did, how did I not know this? And how did we, we had such a great connection. And I just, I wanted to share your story because I think it's, there's so many elements of what we spoke about that would be beneficial to our listeners. And um, they just offer such great insight. And so I'm so glad that you would come and share your story with us. Can you talk a little bit about yourself? Yes. Well, I am originally from New York. I grew up in Georgia, though. Moved here recently, about two years ago, to actually help open up CWC after COVID. Um, I've been working in education since my early years in college. I worked in an after-school center called the Summer Hill Project. And then I started working, teaching in schools there because I had a lot of free time on my hands. Um, I know that sounds kind of crazy, but I was doing other artistic stuff. And during the day, I had so many hours where all my friends slept during the day. So I was like, you know what? I really like working with kids. I'm going to start back there. So I ended up back in schools and then on and off teaching for a good couple of decades. And what do you do at Citizens of the World? Because we did have Christina, we had Mrs. Aries on just a couple of weeks ago and to talk about, because we love Citizens of the World. It's been a, a life changer for our entire family. I mean, obviously for Liam, who's now receiving an education, but the, the impact that it had on us. So I am all about putting the school's message and letting them be heard as, I mean, as, as much as I, as many people as we can reach, you know? Yeah. Well, and Christina's love and her interest 
in this school kind of led me here as well. The idea that all kids have equal access to a quality education, um, no matter their race, nationality, creed, you know, all of those things. Being inclusive, I just feel like being a part of that is so special. I love to see how kids have been able to thrive with the model of education that we're able to offer them. And mostly, and also the social, you know, social emotional learning, which we really focus a lot on. I think that's important, um, especially at this age. So it's been, it's been a nice part of it. Currently, I am not a teacher. I did preschool through third grade for a very long time. And then I taught middle school fitness <laughs> for a while. And that just kind of happened. And then I was a dean of students. And now I am the school operations manager, which basically I pay the bills, uh, make sure things are running smoothly. And, you know, just an all arounder, just keeping the wheels on as best as we can. We talked about, because there are two things that I, I really want to talk about today. And one is your personal story. And then also touching on the fact that advocacy doesn't have to be a fight and take its toll. Like, I think that's really a, a big goal for Stephen and I, because once we went through what we went through and found CWC, we saw the prolific impact that that fight had taken on our just mental health and our well-being. Well, we've championed that message in several episodes, but it doesn't mean that it's 100% sunk into my head. I mean, personally, I mean, I don't always take care of myself when I'm advocating. So that would be great to talk about. Will you share your, you had told me a little bit about your brother. Yeah. So my, my brother and I, um, we're both adopted. He's older than me, three years older than me. My brother had a lot of uh, health issues when they adopted him. And so I think they were informed of them in a way that it was kind of like, okay, this we do have a, a baby for you. My parents really wanted to, to have kids, um, but he's got some issues. You know, he we we don't know the depths of his issues, but basically they were like, he probably won't make it to 18 was what they were told. And so even knowing that my parents were like, we want to give him. A home, you know, they and so they adopted him and just started the long process of like some physical things that he had issues with and then trying to really wrap their brains around his developmental issues. But, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, he was just a lovely little cute, smiley baby, just like all babies, you know. Um, I think it was as he started getting older and they started to notice like there's a couple of things here and there and people kept giving them just like really not great prognosis. Then I came along and there we are, the perfect nuclear family at the time on paper <laughs> to a boy, a girl, mom, dad, house, whatever. Uh, we ended up in, we were living in upstate New York for a while. My parents both worked at IBM and then they, we got transferred to Georgia and in doing so really changed a lot for our education. It started in North Carolina. We actually moved to North Carolina first for a year and going to the South, you know, in the eighties, it was, it was hard. Education was difficult there. Getting us into school, you know, my parents were fought very hard to be middle class there. Oh, my mom and dad, my mom is black. My dad is Puerto Rican. They're a little bit older. So um, they grew up in a time where 
there was, they, they basically, yeah, desegregated a lot of neighborhoods that they lived in. So they've had to fight for opportunities and, and things like that. And they did the same for us with our education. So it was important to my mom to, you know, they found a house in an area where there were good schools because she knew that, you know, my brother was going to need that. Unfortunately, um, he was not met with the the same amount of support that they were trying to offer him. So, and it kind of goes both ways. I didn't, I wasn't either, but on the opposite end, so. Well, as a child that grew up in the 70s and 80s, myself in Louisiana, I can understand that even if we just stick with the disability part of it, uh, I never went to school with anybody with a disability. I've said that several times on the podcast. There wasn't even anybody with a disability that was on campus. I think there was another school or another place for them, and that's kind of the segregation that was there for disability. I know there was segregation in race as well. But we had our friend Willie Dawkins on, and he spoke about the desegregation of schools because he did. All, he also participated in the desegregation. And one of the things that struck me was that it's not that far away. It wasn't that long ago. Like he was still, his school was still segregated in the seventies. And that's South Carolina. Yeah. And then, you know, of course, if you're in the eighties, it's like coming off of anything that's new. It's just because the word is there and, you know, we've desegregated. That doesn't mean everybody's mind has changed. And that doesn't mean the opportunities are there. That just means we open the door. Like we finally put the law in, you know, you look at idea, which happened 45 years ago. And we're still having the conversation of fighting for an education. So that's the message that really the world needs to know is it took us long enough to make these changes into law. But then, yeah, it's a different thing to make the changes in society. In society and, you know, culturally, um, the way we think. I mean, it's still an epidemic. Exactly. And I do find that parents who have experienced the desegregation or the prejudice in any way, then there's, there's something about that fight. Like... One of the reasons I'm so happy Liam is my son is because I don't know who I was before I had my kids. I know Sophia changed me. I don't know who I was before Liam, but I know that he made me more mindful and aware and empathetic and patient. And I don't mean patient with Liam. I mean patient with the world. And it put me on a different path to where like I've always known the injustices that exist, but put me on a more active path to change those injustices. Uh, You know, your parents, first of all, having adopted your brother, and this is the same message that our community gets when we receive a diagnosis is like your mom actively wanted to adopt your brother. And then the message is, well, he's got (laughs) issues. He's got issues. So he may not live to be 18 because he's older than 18. Am I right? My brother is definitely older than 18. (laughs) (laughs) But the motivation behind that message is just so toxic because your parents are open to having children and building a family. And the message that they receive is already like, well, I don't know if you want this one. Yeah, it's like stamped on the box. We get that every day. Every time there's an extra chromosome or just even the way the testing is so heavy handed, it's... Those messages have to stop. It really does. You know, my brother is unique. I mean, everyone's unique. But I think growing up, having them tell my parents that my parent, you know, I kind of knew just based on the things that other people would say, oh, there's something like 
a little bit different about him. But honestly, putting those labels on him kind of held him back because before he got labeled in these ways, especially with testing and in school, things like that, he was doing great. My mom put a lot of time and effort and love and research and care into helping, trying to get him the things that he needed in order to, to thrive. And, you know, he had outside tutoring, he had counselors, he had physical therapy, all of these things. When we got into the school system in Georgia was when things changed. My brother was happy and would try new things all the time. Even if he couldn't accomplish it, he would still try. He wasn't scared of trying something about going to school, changed that for him. He stopped seeking to do things that he wasn't able to easily accomplish. And he, instead of thinking like, oh, okay, let me, let me try that. Even with everyone's support, he would just, he was, you know, he just didn't. He said, I think he just didn't want to fail. Or he was tired of hearing everyone say like, he can't do it or he's not good at it. So, and he said, he's expressed that in these later years. He didn't express it then. He just shut down, you know? Yeah. Sorry. No. Does your brother have a diagnosis? He's many diagnoses. I guess because it's, you know, he's older, he's 50. Um, so that the language used back then was just, you know, he's learning disabled, period. That's the label you get stamped with. And at the time, you know, he had like cerebral palsy, a little bit of palsy, a little bit of MS. He, so he's got these physical things that people automatically transfer into a developmental thing, which I always just blows my mind just because, you know, if someone walks with a limp, then you think they can't understand the words that are coming out of your mouth. Do you know what I mean? It's a, it's a wild thing to me. So basically, you know, he has quote unquote learning disabilities and that's where they ended it for him. Um, I think now if my, if we were being brought up in this time, he probably, and I, I'm not like a professional in special education, but I think he would be more on the spectrum versus that blanket label of learning disabled. His memory, wild. Like it's an, it's an insane thing. He can remember the minutia of things that I would never, I can't remember what I did last week, but he can remember what I was wearing when I was leaning against a locker in ninth grade, talking to some person, human that I can't even remember the name of. And that's how he always leads his stories with me. He's like, oh, do you remember you're wearing the thing? You're talking to the guy. And I'm just like, I don't remember, but he, he does. So I think he would be more along on the lines, like on the spectrum a bit. He doesn't possess very strong logic or reasoning. Sometimes uh, it's hard for him to carry a conversation past like a very superficial kind of level, but he will remember facts that other people have told him. And so he kind of goes from there. Um, and I think that's mostly because he's got a little bit of dyslexia. So he has a hard time reading. And so he chooses not to read. It's too challenging. So I think his memorization and listening, he he gets a lot of his information out. Are you privy to what your brother's actual class environment was like or where he was in the school? You know, what the other students were like around him? Oh, yeah. In our school, there was not inclusion. Um, there was a hallway where kids that were diagnosed with MR or very severe learning disabilities would go to class without 
one-on-one instruction not you know there was they didn't have BIIs back then or things like that it was very much like here is a room where you are going to sit all day I don't know what happened in there separate from my part of the school the the school gosh that sounds terrible when you say it out loud it's like yeah and I didn't go down that hallway much you know I didn't see him during the day Oh, that makes me really sad. Sorry. I just thinking about it. Um, I would see him in the crossovers. Um, but yeah, he mostly was in special classes, particularly in middle elementary school. They were in a totally different class. Um, high school, a little bit different. He was still in special classes, but I don't, I would see him more in the hallway and they would do other things, you know, together. Gosh, that is really, <laughs> yeah, I guess I haven't thought about it. Well, I think that's, that's the problem with inclusion. Like you were a child, like you didn't, you didn't know, you didn't understand any of that. And I don't, whenever we have the discussion about inclusion and we have had it with many teachers who don't feel it's their job to, you know, implement an IEP, they feel like that's extra. And one of the things we talk about is the impact that it has on the rest of the classroom. I'm so sorry. Saying it out loud, I was like, oh my gosh, what it so terrible. And then it just started getting me thinking about all these. Other- but also you didn't even realize that when you were like, when you were experiencing that, that was your brother that you loved. And that was just what you were told was supposed to happen. Right. He went to his classes and I went to mine. Right. And that's- I didn't even think of it and of anything until we had Liam until we realized, Oh, from the get go, it was, would you like to put Liam in a special day class? Which was and I'm going to say it works for some people. It does work it's for good some for some people. So. But I think a special day class, whatever a special day class was back in the 70s, 80s, was a classroom where someone with Down syndrome, someone with on the spectrum, someone in a wheelchair yes. would just be in a classroom and they teach generally to the group of kind of a low bar. If they taught. Thing. I don't yeah. even know if they taught because honestly, well, we, 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 we've encountered some teachers who are like, I've been doing this for 40 years and why is your son still on curriculum? And it's like, what? Why are you still? T- we had that. Oh my gosh, we could do, we could do we the worst like coffee table book people. of things that were said to us in an IEP. Yeah, we never like to deal with people that start out saying, "I've been doing this for thirty plus years" or whatever, because they're from a different cloth, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Even just the MR, like that. I think I think now we're finally. It's it's your brother was like at the beginning of idea, that's probably why he was al- even allowed in the school, because honestly, a lot of kids didn't receive an education. I mean, the, the classroom was down a hall because, you know, people like uh, Judy Human fought for idea. Yeah, they didn't have a classroom. Yeah, yeah the classrooms back then were probably like just a holding area or like a daycare. Yes. It has been an evolution of changing people's minds. We talked to Ted Green, and he did a documentary on Carl Erskine, and he was a Dodgers pitcher, but before they came, even when they were in New York, he had a son with Down syndrome, so he was a part of the integration. And Yeah, he was a friend of Jackie Robinson with the Brooklyn Dodgers, and then after he retired, he had a child with Down syndrome, and it was just a neat conversation about him because we saw this common thread of the Jackie Robinson story and then his son with Down syndrome because it was this civil rights story kind of like paralleled. He happened to be uh, maybe more unique in his time that he grew up in a quote unquote mixed neighborhood 
And so he was accepting of everyone. And it showed that because he had an inclusive neighborhood that just happened to be inclusive, right? Carl. He, Carl did. He was accepting of people. And I don't so, even know if the word accepting of people, I think it's not that we accept people, is that there's, we just include, I like, I like, we include everyone, that everybody deserves to be there. And when he was little, everybody was there. Yeah. And he saw the value of why everyone was there. And that's what we need to see in a classroom, in the workplace, where we see people from all around our community come together and we see their value in that place. Yes. And by putting them in a separate room down the hall, you don't get to to see that value. You're basically saying you are not valued. You're not valued enough to be in our in our community, you know. You're his sister and you didn't see him during the day. So other students aren't going to see him and see other kids. So there's a whole group of kids that aren't interacting with each other. And the thing that you said that before he started, he was willing to try new things. He didn't have this this opinion of himself. And your brother clearly has the ability to be educated and do what's required of students, which is listen and then say it back, right? That's, I mean, that's really what a lot of testing is, is that we listen and then they test us and we remember it. But because he was told he couldn't. He didn't have to, he, they, they set the bar so low that he, he, he reached their bar, mm-hmm. but he didn't go any further because they, that's where they put it, you know? And over time, like even just being in class with kids that were at developmentally at a different pace than he was, he just, I feel like he regressed a little bit as well. And I think think that way now or in the past few years, I've had these conversations with my mom because I've taught at schools that offer inclusion. I've seen it work and I'm like, gosh, can you imagine where he would be if if he went to like the school that I work at? He would be, you know, leaps and bounds further along in life than he is now where, you know, he still lives at home and wasn't given the tools to be able to really take care of himself um, in the world that we've made (laughs) everyone. So as much as we still fight for Liam to receive accommodations and to be in the classroom, we do realize it's better than it was. And we can see that in all the accomplishments that we're seeing from kids and adults in the Down syndrome community. And we always go back to what a guest of ours, Dr. Scott Coe had said, is that keep in mind that the chromosome hasn't changed. What's changed is what we're doing for and supporting. And you can see how important a true education is for everyone. Yeah. Honestly, there's part of me that wants to, I wish he could see that too. You know, I wish I could bring him and be like, gosh, look at this. But I, it would be lost a, a little bit on, on him. And because I think he's, he's, very much just his mindset is set. (laughs) And unfortunately, in this lifetime, we'll not be able to change it. But yeah, like hope in the future for future generations, and they won't have to go through that. They won't ever have to feel less than they really are. What would you want him to see? Just that that doesn't matter what someone might label you or some test says. like you have something special inside of you that you can foster, you know, that, and then, and then there are people out there that do believe in, in you. And it isn't, you aren't just this like 
number on a piece of paper because it's always like the IQ test, right? These numbers, they look at it and they're just like, oh, no, write you off. And he's just, you know, he, he'll say things like, oh, I can't do that. You know how I am. And Bob's like, you can do that if you just take a second. And like the, lots of times it's just about getting him to like take a minute and really hear without already, because he blocks things out immediately. You know, it's just like, no, nope, can't do it. No, I can't. You can, you got to do this for me. I'm not going to be able to do this. And I was like, actually you can. Cause he always felt very alienated. He was always like, oh, you were popular. You didn't talk to me in school. And it's because I didn't have, you know, as many friends as you did. I was like, that isn't, that wasn't it. I think one, we're teenagers. So we're, when we were in school together, it was very much like you have your group here. And it's like, I don't want to talk to my brother. You know, it was, it had nothing to do with his disability, but in his mind it did. Um, and just seeing how a classroom where everyone is together learning, it does not matter. I think that, I don't, I guess not as an adult. I wish he had it as a kid. I, I'm more so wishing that he could see that when he was younger. And it's like that it's a wonderful life or whatever, going back and showing like, this is what your life could have been like, <laughs> things like that. I think it could change him because he, he seems very, at this point in his life, just resigned to being where he is. And like the things that he said, like, I can't, I can't do those things. I, I, I have to do this, this job because I can't, I'm not, I can't do anything else. It was, that was just a recent conversation we were having. Cause he said he changes oil or he was changing oil at the time at a gas station for less than he should be getting paid because they know that they can kind of get over on him, which is also another thing. <laughs> like people really take advantage of it. And he has, it's been so long that I think he's just used to it. If a child grows up in an abusive household, there are certain ramifications and the way that that uh, presents itself. But that person, and, and I always talk about how as a society, when a child is in a bad environment, people will raise money or awareness and want to support and do these things, you know, their schools have drives and, but that child, if there's no change in their environment and then they become 18, then the world turns on that child. And now it's like the child's fault. And when you were talking about your brother, it's as if society and the school system, and, and we've, we've said this in our experience with the school system, and that's now, which we know there's been change, it's abusive. And it shouldn't be. The feelings that we have felt, no parent should feel when fighting for an even saying fight for an education, it's been done. So I can imagine what your brother's been told about himself and what he feels. And there is a certain point where we just believe it. If that's what your school is telling you, if that's what society's telling you, you know, at some point it's just easier to say, okay, you it's know. It's the classic oppressor slash oppressy narrative. And, you know, I can imagine that your brother probably risked it a few times and believed in himself a few times. And it probably didn't feel, it probably didn't feel good always being told that you can't. And this is why I wanted to talk to you because this is your brother's story and he's 50 now. And this is the importance. This is why 
as parents, we do have to fight for their place in the classroom because this is what happens when the system is allowed to lead the way. And I'm sure that your your mom fought really hard. She did. And she still, she still does, you know, there are times where she'll have to fight for, she was looking at his paycheck and just was kind of confused why he wasn't getting paid the right overtime. You know, he hadn't looked at it because he also, you know, he is older and he's like, I'm an adult. Um, I can handle my things, but he came home complaining about something and she looks at it and she's just like, what is this? Like, you're not getting paid correctly, you know? And he's like, oh, don't go in there and, you know, don't make a fuss, you know, don't, I'll, I'll worry about it. that's, it's right. You know, and he starts to believe everyone else, not her. So she is still, you know, still fights for him. I think he's very fortunate that she is still around because he's got her, you know, in his corner. He, without her, he doesn't, he wouldn't have anyone else. He, we don't, my our father passed away a long time ago. My mom is his biggest champion and it's going to be really difficult for him, you know, when she moves on. And I think she will fight for him until, until that day happens, really. It just has to change at the core because I think about where your brother works. That's against the law. Gosh, what it's they're so doing. infuriating to me. It makes me go through, like it is against the law. That is a violation of his rights. But she's There's fighting like, for him still. We come across stories of people that just kind of relegate that as, that's just kind of what happens. I mean, we had a story we heard and about a young Somebody man with Down paid. syndrome was went to his favorite pizza place and got hired there, and he would roll napkins with forks and knives in there and, and put in a certain amount of hours, whatever his schedule was, and the owner of the pizza place at the end of the night would give him a couple of pizzas. That was it? That's his payment. Hey, buddy, great job. And people were pizza. happy. People were like, oh, that's so good. I was like, uh, no. And that owner is taking credit for being some kind of hero. Yeah. And then also promoting bad yeah. dietary <laughs> to the kid. It's like, it's so many levels. Pizza every night. Wow. That's the mindset that needs to change. That's the mindset that this community has been fed and individuals with disabilities, you, you know, it used to be if someone had a physical disability, they were not with the rest of their class. It didn't matter cognitive level. It was just all, you know, and there is a need for a different, and I don't, I really am against the word special because I think it's gotten to be like the R word and it's the butt of a joke. And I, I, I don't have any tolerance for it. The language that's used still needs to evolve. But there is a need sometimes for, you know, a place where kids can test that's quiet, a place where people can be that's not as oversensory. There is a need, but because it's become other than that, it's not useful. It's interesting now as an adult, and I would benefit from a space to test or do work that is sensory, you know, not so stimulating. I would benefit with a 
shorter testing period or work period where I can take some breaks and then come back to it. I would thrive in that. I need it. And now, I mean, I can make it for myself, but I think that would benefit all students. It's not just students with that label of special needs. You know, it's, that is a human need at this point. There's all these different things that we, we could offer to all that, which is what we do at our school, you know, meeting kids where they're at, all kids, no matter what, where they're at. Right. And so making that more of the narrative than like, these are what these kids particularly need, like just trying to figure out where each individual will be able to thrive. Like that's what the kind of teaching environment I want to be a part of. Teachers are always accommodating students. Yeah, and that's what I was going to say when you were talking students. about they do. And, and that's one of the things, especially that was brought up during the pandemic is what would you say? They don't like the word normal, but the there's a better word than normal, well, but typical? like typical, I guess, um, the mainstream student body or whatever you want to call it are always being accommodated. Every child is being accommodated. My daughter goes to school and she is being accommodated. She's being met where she is. She's being given the conversation of, you know, take breaks, take care of your wellness. Um, if something's too much, she can go and, you know, talk to somebody and they'll say, oh, we'll give you more time. And there doesn't have to be a document written up. It's just, it's human what is it? Human kindness. It's just consideration that this is, oh, this is what's going to work for you. Yeah. Let's give you a tutor. We're going to work one-on-one with you. And, and you're not going to have a stigma. You're not going to feel anything bad. You're not going to have a label. You're not going to be meant to feel dumb or less than or anything. We're just going to say, this is what you need right now. And we're going to get you over that hump. It's only with the student body who has an IEP or is labeled learning different that it comes with a stigma and the road has been carved so deeply that there's a path that as soon as those words are said, there is just, oh, we're just going to truck you right here. And it doesn't, it doesn't matter if, if Steven and I were in the same class with the same needs and you put a, a label on me, we would end up in different places and we would receive different things. And the things that I needed that he would get, we would, you know, there'd have to be a conversation and a fight and funding and all of these things. And that's really why I wanted to have this conversation with you because you experienced that. You can't get mad at yourself because you were a kid in a system because that's exactly what Ted Green said when we were talking to him, the documentarian. He experienced the same thing with somebody in his class. And it's not it's not until we're adults that we look back and go, oh, my goodness, this is what they were doing with our friends. This is what it's unfair. I know I can look back and really see the the biggest change is high school, right? And that's because that's where your social part comes. You start to grow really as a as a human on that side of education. And when you start separating people, then they don't get the opportunity. He didn't have the opportunities to build these friendships or relationships in a way that everyone else did. Um, and I think that just really dimmed his light inside and out, you know? When he is happy, I mean, he like really couldn't light up a room, you know, and like, I just noticed a lot of joy just left and I've left home 
very shortly after high school because while I still went to the same high school, I didn't have the same things as he did. I had we had some other issues. I was ready to get out of this small town and go somewhere else where people were less racist. And he had to stay there. So it was like on top of having those learning things, he also had the the racism that he had to deal with. And it's it's been a tough road for him. It is hard to think about. I don't think about it often. I guess just in our conversation, it brought it up. And and now even talking now, it's just like more stuff in my brain. It's like, oh, that was as much as they tried to do right by us. I think it was during that time. It was hard. It was a hard it was hard. Our parents really wanted the best and, you know, to offer us things that they didn't get. Sometimes you have to think at, at what cost, you know, <laughs> sometimes. But I think that having a family who loved him and that he was in a classroom, that was the best that was available. I mean, if you think of it on that terms, that that was the best, you know, your mom fought for what she got. There were people who didn't fight and got less. And even a, a loving household today. Yeah. You guys are fighting. And it sounds like you've had an equally really difficult road. And you were lucky enough to come across our school. Hopefully it's been, I hope you consider it lucky. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh my yeah. gosh. I really didn't know what I was going to do with middle school because I don't believe that it has changed enough from what your brother experienced? The other schools we were looking at, they didn't believe in Liam. They wouldn't have believed in Liam. You know, I, you're talking about the way you are stepping back and seeing things of your childhood, and I, I hope that educators in, in, in as a whole can see like that, can be enlightened like that, because we're being enlightened all the time as well. But we had a educator a couple of years ago that was so proud of Liam learning his his numbers and I remember it was something like 137 that he was saying that correctly. And she goes, I just hope one day, you know, he can look up at the sign and see I'm waiting for the bus number 137 to go to work. And no, with, she didn't say to go to work. She just said to get on a bus. Oh, well, I was giving her a benefit of the doubt because I was thinking, well, at least she's <laughs> thinking he's going to work. But in my mind, I'm going, well, she's cut out completely that he would ever drive or be able to call and order a taxi even or whatever. Just I'm taking the bus. So here's someone that, I thought at the moment was a bit in a bit open to saying things, but not totally open. Like the bar was raised a little, but shouldn't we raise the bar to the very top for everyone? Yeah. And then there's a chance that that child can can reach that. You don't discuss a child's mode of transportation when they're in the third grade. <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> Everything may be flying and fully autonomous by the time he's driving, right? So you can't. And they never they never <laughs> looked at Sophia in the third grade and said. So, you know, but maybe Liam will drive and maybe, you know what, maybe he will ride a bus. I have lots of friends. Yeah, whatever. Who ride, yeah. Like, you just, you take a train, you take a bus, but, but I'm it not was, stamping that but right now. It's not why we learn our numbers. It's not why we're learning math. We're learning math so we can, you know, think differently yeah, when, when we're and having conversations and solved. deeply about things. Yeah. I think even with my brother being labeled like at birth basically like oh probably not gonna make it to 18 then all of a sudden you've already there there goes the bar right it's down here that we don't we don't even have to think about things passing because he's not gonna he's not gonna mature to that you know um so it, you already start you already started off here 
And you know, the school sees that and they're like, well, why are we going to educate him? He's not going to be here after high school. You know, you know that. What about your poor mom? Who's like every moment with my son, that changes the way you live. That changes the way you feel, you know, that it really does. It changes like the importance of certain things in your day. If. Well, that aspect of looking toward the future, I had always thought when Liam was in the classroom, I, I had always thought that Liam wasn't put into that group that teachers looked at and said, this is our future. Hey, all third graders, here's our future, our future presidents, our future CEOs. This is our future. I never felt Liam was put there in the mind of the educator. And he most definitely is the future. Yes. Absolutely. Because this future is the breaking open of like from Liam's generation and everybody that comes up behind him, you're going to have different educators. You're going to have educators that are inclusive. Like he has you. One of the things I always say is like, we raise that bar for Liam. This is the first school where I didn't get a chuckle back. Mm -hmm. Oh, you're going to raise the bar for Mm -hmm. him? Yeah. I'm like, no, if you can just keep that bar up really high and then let him, everybody else has to reach everybody. That's what school is about. You don't know something, you reach for it, you learn it. Like, you fail. You, you Right? You fail. You, you get, get back up. Okay, and then once you learn that, then there's another thing that you're going to learn and you build on it. And that's just what's, that's school. You know, we talk about that you're fighting for an education and we do fight. And, and I'll tell you at the end of it, it was exhausting because we set out to change that school and we didn't change the school at all. Yeah, the old school. We, we changed us. We left the school. I hope that we were able to help a, a few parents who were on the same path as us. But you, we, we didn't. And we had to leave. And we didn't change the school. But because we fought constantly, Liam stayed in the classroom. You know, we had to be on top of them. I think I wrote two to three emails every week about homework, about supports, about you're testing Liam here. You're not testing Liam on this. You're not giving him the supports for this. You know, he would go in science with no BII because that was her break. He was getting a, a zero in science. And I was like, how is that? It's science. Like science and math can be really easy with someone with an IEP if the right supports are in place because the supports are your notes written for you, your calculator and things that make it accessible. And he was getting a zero. And I was like, can you please tell me what support? And that's all parents listen to me. If your parent, if your kids getting something, but what kind of supports are in place? Because what happens is then you go into these meetings and they say, well, he can't do this, this and this. And what I learned is that that is my situation, but that is not my problem or my job. It's your job to teach my son. So what can we do for you to teach him? right? What can we do to turn that around? And if you can't, you have to pay someone who can. So tell me what you're going to do. And that is the conversation I wish I had. I have not had a conversation like that in 14 months. (laughs) (laughs) I had conversations like that all the time. And I just, I want parents to understand, like you experienced the other way to the end where your brother is 50 now and the, the challenges, and you can look back and, and say, this is what your, your mom fought for, but really because there were other things and it's, it was at the beginning. It was really at the beginning. I mean, she, it were now she would be fighting like, like you, she can be the squeakiest wheel in, in the munch, which did get him to where he was, you know, cause people kept trying to hold him back 
And then she would just get him tutors on the side because we didn't have, we weren't in a school system where they were going to offer any kind of help besides like, okay, yeah, he can come to school. But other than that, that's it, you know? Yeah, the, the resources weren't even available. No. Did he receive his high school diploma? He did. He graduated from high school. He was going to technical college as well for a little bit. And that was all my mom too. <laughs> there was no chance he wasn't going to some kind of higher education after high school. Like, absolutely not. It's not going to work for her. I got counseled into going to tech school by the same, at the same school, the same counselor, because they didn't look at IQ scores. They were just like, they looked at me as a black woman. They're like, I oh, should probably study nail tech or what about hair? You know, thank goodness I had my parents because my mom was like, don't listen to that lady. Like you're going to this, you know? So every he had that stigma of being a black kid with learning disabilities, you know, I think that even more so put him in a category where they did not want to educate him because it was a waste of their time. Like, what's the point of educating you when you're not going to go anywhere in life, you know? And that's, that's definitely the vibe that was given to both of us. And I, at least I, you know, I can remember it and I do, especially in trying to apply for college but to him it was that was the norm so of course he's like I can't do it I can't do this this is too hard for me I'm I don't know why I'm doing it, you know and even with all the pushing that my mom tried there's only so much you could hammer away at 12 years of somebody who is with your child longer than you are during the day more than you are during the day telling them that they're not enough so they can come home and you can be like no you are enough you are enough eh, it's gonna be really hard to chip away at that for them. So it is important um, that they're getting the same message both at home and at school. Your kids are with us as educators. I'm with your kid probably more than you get to see him, right? Uh, right now, you see him on the weekends or after school and some parents not even because they're working or they are, don't have that opportunity to. So if they're getting that message all day long, someone telling you, eh, you're not good enough. Why, why bother, right? You can go home to the loving, the most loving household in the world and still might not be able to get over that. That's why we keep stressing this message of inclusion, because we know it works. Right now, there's a faction of our society that kind of groups that word into the, maybe the DEI aspect of things and kind of rejects that. But it's not about a political view. It's not about an opinion. It's fact. We know that all of us together, learning from each other, being open to someone's future, raising the bar, helps the student. And this is the problem, because you just said that. And honestly, I always say we have more input in our kids than they do. Like that's who, that's, that's really what I believe. So that statement just rocked me because I... I have lived by the fact that I have more of a say in my child's life than these people who have boxes and limits. Like I have more of an input on, on him. We fight for inclusion. We fight for that message. So what is it that we do? What is it that, you know, the mom who has it, like the sophomore in high school you know, hopefully in an inclusive classroom, hopefully they've, they've, they've stayed in the system, but I'm not one for separate proms. I'm not, I'm just so tired of 
this this segregation, and I want to ask you about that too, because you both received the same message. So how did it land on you? And how did you pull out of it? How did it, I can ask you, how did that message affect you? That's how it affected your brother. That's how it's going to affect any child who gets the message. So let me ask you that first. Like, how did that affect you by being told, go to a technical school, learn how to do nails or hair when you knew that you were smart? Well, I mean, I, I always had my mom too, and she made a huge difference, obviously, in, in how he, he got received education, how I received education, and how I thought about myself, because she also had to fight for her own education. Um, and so she's just like, look, I'm your mother. I am telling you, you are more than enough. You don't have to listen to those people. Like, if they're telling you this, they're wrong. And I can go up there and tell them to their face that they're wrong. Or you can, you know, she would, she was like, I will go up there. My mom would, my mom would show up in a minute. If there was something wrong being done to me, absolutely. But she also did give me a good foundation to fight for, for myself. And because I was used to seeing her fight for us my whole life. I saw it with my own eyes. I heard it with you know, with my ears, I watched and very like, I was kind of a quiet observer to a lot of things, especially with, with my brother, and then my own education, like just watching how, how invested she was, like education to my mom was so important. And growing up, I think when she, you know, they weren't offered had, they didn't have the room to, to be educated, especially my mom is late 80s and grew up a little bit in rural Virginia. They were not offered education. And as a girl, you know, there was very little value because you either worked on the farm or you, you know, you picked tobacco or you did housekeeping, you know, it wasn't, she wasn't even valued as much as her brothers would have been. And then she was very young when they moved to New York, but just having to fight for education there, like, you know, during the forties, fifties, sixties. So she did that for herself. And then in turn was like, no, I worked really hard to get where I am. And now my kids aren't going to have to fight as hard as I am. But if they do, I will fight. I will do the fight for them. I think that's why it's so important to tell our stories and to share our stories. But I want to go back to it. Do you remember? I know your brother would if I asked him, (laughs) but do you remember how it felt like to have a counselor say those things to you? How I personally felt? Yeah. I mean, I was in a place, I think, in my life, too, where I very much didn't trust white people Sorry, at the time because of all the stuff that we'd been going through. And I was one of, I think I counted, I think we had 86 Black students in my high school of 1,500. So it was just a small amount. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't trust what white people had to say. And so to me, it was like, it didn't matter. I was like, look, lady, I have, I'm coming here because I have to, because we're supposed to come and get college applications and counseling, but I already know that I'm going to school and it doesn't matter. I basically definitely had this, I'm smarter than you and you can't tell me anything. You know, that teenage sort of bravado, I guess. (laughs) I don't know if I would have had it had I not had my mom telling me like, yes, you can. And you will. Um, Yeah. So I wonder about other kids that might have gone in there that weren't my friends. Um, Who knows? I don't know what these people were told or what they were telling other people and getting away with. I think that's what's hard with our community. It's because Liam's very fortunate. He has Miss Juvie. 
who's phenomenal, yeah. and she's his BII. the yeah. BII. He was really fortunate when he was in elementary school to have a BII that communicated with us. And this is what I always felt was suspect. They're not supposed to talk to you. I have a problem with that. I have a problem with the fact that this person with my son all day is not supposed to talk to me. Like I just volunteered in class all the time and I would observe I just like let kids come because kids in elementary school will tell you anything. Like kids will, kids will be like, Hey, today uh, the teacher let Liam pay on his iPad all day. And I'm like, Oh really? That's interesting. Thank you. <laughs> Still do it. <laughs> yeah. Right. So it's really Im- important. And you know, we have Miss Juby as his voice, but I think that's where different school districts really start to guide the narrative for the kids because the kids are hearing it. And there's nobody saying, what do you, you can't say those things. Yeah. For me in that particular situation, you're in a counseling office with one person in a closed door room where they're trying to counsel you to do something for the rest of your life. They're counseling you actually to do nothing for the rest of your life. Oh yeah. To not issues. <laughs> it still makes me laugh. But you know what? You're fortunate that you had the bravado that teenagers have. You're fortunate that your parents gave you the message that they're wrong. We need to be okay with telling our kids if it doesn't lift you up. That's not your narrative. Nobody can tell you what your limits are. I even tell Sophia, I can't tell you what your limits are. Only you can tell you what your limits are. I think parents a lot of times feel like they're the squeaky wheel. You can't feel like you're the squeaky wheel. You, like your voice. I don't know where all of these things were were handed to us. They were handed to us to make us feel, you know, guilty and self-conscious and insecure about our actions. But I think if our intentions are loving and supporting of our children, then it's the truth. And the truth is not wrong. Well, the other half of the squeaky wheel is that it gets oiled. Right. But we can be the squeaky wheel and not get oiled. And that's when the parents feel like... The squeaky wheel part is negative. Right. Standing up for yourself is not negative. Saying this is what I need and then having it done is the idea. But parents fear retribution, just like your brother probably feared retribution if your mother was going to go down to his workplace and tell them that they were doing something wrong. Yeah, the squeaky wheel gets replaced by another wheel. And that just has to stop. It's this constant fight. Being a squeaky wheel is, is work. And it's exhausting. It's like, why is it a fight? I'm fighting for your education. You know, I'm fighting for this. Like, it is tiring to fight all the time. And why do we have to do this? Like, I feel like sometimes because my mom had to fight so much, like her whole life for all the things, right? I don't think she's learned to not fight anymore. Like everything's a fight now. Like how exhausting must that be for years? Just shouldn't be a fight. For any of us, for anyone, education is a right. It's not a, it shouldn't be a fight. We should all deserve to have access to the same information, the same tools, the same everything as the next person. Yeah. I hadn't thought about like her because her personality is very like a little bit bristly sometimes, but I think it is just from always fighting. I can tell you personally, um, if you want to talk to... Mr. Jake or Mrs. Shea, Miss Shea, 
about how we were like after the fight. Like it's it's really taken us a about a year. Our first IEP with CWC, we were like so insecure. Like when when we were getting first of all when we were getting all the information and we we're like this is a trap. <laughs> totally talking about not trusting white people. <laughs> I didn't trust any school administrator. No administrators at all. And then here's Mr. Jake and. You know, he was so nice and inviting, but when, you know, we had, we were, I, I never used the word triggered before. And then all of a sudden we got an IEP notice and I like had a panic attack and I was like, oh, this is where it falls apart. Why are they asking us these things? This is where, you know, there was maybe a typo. And honestly, at the school that Liam went to, should I say it or not? Because sometimes I'm like, n- sometimes it's like Voldemort, but this is part of the thing about the fight. I feel like... If we all hold up our cameras, if we all record our IEPs, if every time something ridiculous is said to us, we write a letter to the district, if we call our local news station, if we do these things, will we have to fight as much? Because I feel like that's where the turn comes is we are a group of individuals who, like you said, as parents, we're exhausted from the fight. So you either get exhausted or you're like, you know what? I'm just, I can't. And that's okay if you can't. That's absolutely okay. That's what's best you feel is best for you and your family. That is okay. But I know when we were at the old school, we never spoke about it. We were on PTA, like we were supporting the hell out of that school and we felt isolated and we felt alone and we felt betrayed and we just felt all of these, once again, feelings that you should never feel when it comes to edu, like especially elementary education, you should never feel these things. But I feel like if we just stop caring about the squeaky wheel, caring about the sound it makes And instead of being the ones, like, we feel like we're in the wrong. If we stand up for what is our child's right. I know I felt like, uh, 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 for so many years, I bought so many muffins, (laughs) bought so many gift cards for lunch. And every time Stephen would be like, I don't know why you're buying it. And I'm like, I don't know, rising above, rising above. But if we would just change our mind, the fight's been fought. And it's just holding people accountable and calling BS. No, you can't say that. You have to do this. Show me where it says. Show me why you say that about my child. Because the burden of proof is on them. But we've been made to feel like the burden of proof is on us. But it's not. Stop taking the burden as ours. One, it's a shared burden. And it's not just a shared burden with us in the district. It's a shared burden of the world. Because until you can go into a grocery store and people don't point, until no one says derogatory comments about your child, until we all welcome each other, this is a shared burden of the entire world. Like Until we are loving and empathetic and compassionate and welcoming, it's on everyone. No one's injustice is just theirs. Right. If maybe we just change our language, I'm not going to fight. I'm going to hold you accountable. I'm not going to fight. I'm going to stand here next to my child and be their voice. And the community is getting together and we're also getting allies. And that's really how you make a movement. Right. And if you know that we're together and there's allies Maybe in your heart, your fighting heart, you can feel 
like backed up. Yeah. Like you did going into that counselor's office. And then it it feels like less of a fight possibly for somebody else. When you're saying, oh, I, should I should I say their name? Should I not say their name? Should I not, you know, speak it into the world? Sometimes I feel like we are very much trained to be like, I don't want to cause any more problems than there already are. Like I, I'm going to do all this without directly addressing this particular person or this particular place. Well, the name of the elementary school is Carpenter Community Charter in Studio City, California. <laughs> and we've said it before, but I will say the name Carpenter Community Charter again, that this is the school. But the reason I actually said, maybe we don't have to say it, is because it hurts me. <laughs> right. I still am a little sore from it. I still have some wounds from it. And, you know, it's almost like and it's an old relationship that was abusive like you said, Voldemort. Maybe no, you just well, don't I think say his name. I think that's the situation. Is that uh, you know, and it's two things. Because what you were just saying, what you were talking about, is that's how we felt when we were in the school. Like I don't want to say anything because mm-hmm. I don't that's want. True. And also, you don't want retaliation, and not just retaliation from the district because the district doesn't give a crap. They know they're denying your child their right to an education. I guarantee it. And not from the administrators because they actually are not allowed to blatantly retaliate against you. Although we ha- did have some teachers kind of be turds when when we filed a complaint about <laughs> against another teacher. Yeah. I mean, teachers giving you a stink eye. It's like really, I want you to stop for a second and know that you are giving the stink eye to a parent of a child with a disability who you were denying their education. So if that's who you're going to give a stink eye, I don't know how you sleep at night. And sometimes we do what is going to feel easier to walk on the campus, especially when it's even like a legal thing and you're always in a back and forth with administration and the school in general and teachers. You don't feel like you have any allies on campus. But you know every person who's judging you would do the same thing for their child. Yeah. Every single one of them. I'm at a point with Carpenter Community Charter in Studio City. (laughs) (laughs) For me, there's part of me who doesn't want to give them any more power or time. And then there's the part of me who feels so accountable to any parent who is in that school or any other school that has a great reputation and feels alone and feels wrong and feels like a squeaky wheel. I feel accountable to them to say, these people are horrible. They, they abuse your child's civil rights up and down many, many times to many, many families on a daily basis. And that's who I really feel accountable to is to say you're not alone because you feel alone. You feel like there's no possible way this is going on at such a epidemic level. You know, there's, there's no way, but it is you're meant to feel like you're the only one and you're a problem. And why would you want that? And how can you ask for that? And then the other one is, it's for our, like, we want to get past it. Like, we want to let go of them. We want to be done with them. And I have to tell you, since we've been at Citizens of the World, it's been like, I feel spoiled. I feel fortunate. I feel almost guilty that I know what I was living through 13 months ago. I've always wanted to work with children. Even when I was a child, it was like a weird thing. I don't understand it. But leaning into teaching came because I had a teacher that like turned my experience around. Um, 
somebody who, despite all of those things, like all of this narrative that was getting thrown at us from all over, like really in school, like from administration to individual teachers, like one just changed the way that I thought my education could be. And I always wanted to do that for other people, like be there and, and advocate for them and, and like show them that there is somebody that supports them outside of, you know, my mom, cause she was, she was there, but in doing so and being at, and having the opportunity to be at these schools where I, even my own mind was open because like we said before that's all we knew so I didn't know back then like it was bad to like separate kids into you know to not include everyone in education it was like oh yeah that's a see you later I'll see you at you know 3 30. So being having the opportunity to work in schools that I'm working in now caused me to go back and like have that conversation with my mom about my brother's education. It's eye-opening and I am still learning stuff every day. Watching kids like Liam thrive in school, you know, um, just seeing the light in their eyes and like there's talks about the future that they are having that my brother never had. Um, and I don't know that he ever will even think of, be able to think of himself in those ways. I'm like, as hard as sometimes this job can be, or just being in a school system, especially now can be that, that those are the things that make it worth it to me. And if it, you do make like one difference in one person's life, it really does matter. I know people say that and it's like a Hallmark card, but it actually like, that's what, that's what I'm here for. You know, that's why I'm doing this. This is why that's the why. Well, Lori always talks about the importance of telling your story because your story changes the next generation's story. I'm not happy about it, everything in your story, but I'm blessed that you've told us your story. I'm grateful that you are sharing it, you know, and, and you share that the, your mother's story. She grew up without the right to an education. Nobody was going to educate your mother. But because of it, she is still an active learner. If my mom doesn't know something, she will buy a book. She will get on the internet. She is does not stop learning. It was annoying <laughs> to me as a kid. And now I look back and I'm like, whoa, you know, she wouldn't be where she is if she didn't have that kind of growth mindset. And where did it come from, right? Because her whole life, people were like telling her no. And she was just like, there was something in her that fought for that. And she tried to instill it in us, you know? And I probably was able to handle like those conversations with like counselor that I spoke about because my cognitive abilities were different than my brother's, right? He we got the same stuff at home. My mom's telling us both the same things, but he wasn't able to, to like quite process that information in the same way as I, as I did. And I don't, it's so hard because it, there are times where I'm like, Oh, we grew up the same. Like, how come you, cause you don't know what was said in that room. I don't, I have no idea to be honest. We don't know what happened in that room. And that was a room, you know, that was their special day class. That was 40 years ago. We don't know what was said because there was no accountability. And that is the element. Your mom didn't listen to what she was told, didn't listen to the limits that were put on her. She taught you not to do that. The element that your brother had was hours of other people, just whatever those limits were instilled in him. And we have the power 
to set our intentions and and we do have I'm so glad it came back around not that I need to write it but I just feel a little bit better that like we do have that power to influence our children's lives even if it's just telling them ignore that narrative right because the room is different the room is different now there may be some lingering qualities but the room is different and the law we know is on our side and so we can have different conversations. There are just different things that we can keep people in check for. And I think that opens my eyes and reminds me, yes, I still have more say in my child's life, but yes, I do need to have accountability. People do need, I do need to hold people accountable. And if I ever have to go back into that room, then I can hopefully do it from the place of, I don't know, just to be there, right? Maybe that's it. You just, you're just there. And it's not the story of the past unless it informs us. I can't predict the future, but in that moment, what is going on and is it serving my student and is it serving the message that I, I want to fill them with? Because that will ultimately determine what they believe about themselves. Yes. And I, I think that's when I was saying like your kids are in school more than at home. So it is, it's not that, oh my gosh, you're not going to have as much of an effect. It's, it's important to instill this like sense of inclusion and all, all of those things, make sure that the, the things that your child is getting in those eight hours, 10 hours, whatever align with what you're teaching at home. So it is like, that's what makes the fight important. That's what makes this, this importance. Like you can say all the things that you want at home, but if you're going to that other day school, it could really be moot at some point. So it's like, make sure for all the people out there, out there that aren't getting the things that they, they need or their, their child deserves. Like it is important to, to seek out that and don't stop until you, until you get it, because the ramifications are like you, you know, we did all that we could with our education system. It's a feeder school. We didn't have charter schools while we were able to afford a, a house and things going to a private school during that time was not in the cards for us. Right. Um, and I don't even know that that would have helped because <laughs> they didn't have private schools that would cater to his needs. So it's like, we had to do the best with what we were given. And that was the school system that was supposed to be great, but didn't cater to the needs of my brother. And here, like we have the opportunity to change that. Um, and so never stop trying to find the right fit for you. And like being that voice, because, because it's important, it can make a huge difference and it will alter the outcome of your kid's life, your student's life. Like my, I feel like, Honestly, in my heart of hearts, I feel like if my brother went to a school like the school that I teach at now at, at like CWC, he would be leaps and bounds farther than he is right now and and happier, which is really the key. I don't think that he's happy and that it breaks my heart. Thanks for your honesty and thanks for your vulnerability and your truth, because I don't think we can change the future or the moment unless we really look at the past. We very rarely get the actual story. We know bits and pieces and those little bits and pieces are too hard to swallow. Like they're hard, like we see them, but we can only look for a second because we don't, we don't want to remember certain things. We don't want to, it's just hard, but we have to, if we want to change anything, we have to know what doing it wrong 
looks like. We have to know what consequence is there. We have to know that it's real. It is absolutely real that it happens. And that can give us motivation and remind us why we're fighting. But I just appreciate your honesty and vulnerability. And I'm, and I'm sorry that our conversation was a little painful for you. I'm, I'm really sorry, but I'm just really thankful that you, I'm just thankful that you shared it with us and your honesty, because, um, it's really important. It's really, really important. And it was a very sobering conversation because I haven't even thought about the possibility of a public high school. And it just, it reminds me just, even though I'm in this place of respite and where like, I don't know, what would you call Oz or Willy Wonka's chocolate factory of education? It's still important to continue to advocate and it's still important to continue to change the narrative and, and work and support. And, um, it's just important. Like you said, it's just important until the change is there. It's important that we continue to stand up and speak for the change. I appreciate the opportunity. Thank you so much for having me. I think I'm not one to talk about stuff. And over the years, I realized that it isn't talking about things that are good, bad, or indifferent, you know, that where change comes. And so I, I hope it inspires someone to either tell their story as well or change the story for someone else. It's been really lovely. Please follow us on Twitter at If We Knew Then Pod, and you can drop us a line on our Facebook page at If We Knew Then Pod, or visit our website, ifweknewthen.com, to send us an email with questions and comments. And you can join our mailing list there and get alerts of future podcast episodes. All these links will be added to this episode's show notes. Thank you again, and we look forward to you joining us on the next episode of If We Knew Then. Come and tell-